and I just want people to find Jesus. I don't care really whether people like me or dislike me or I've only got what God's given me to to use. And I don't make any excuses about that. I don't I don't apologize for it really. I get death threats, I get lots of things from other Christians that don't particularly like me and things like that. That was a bit of a shock at the beginning because I thought, blimey, I'm only trying to do good stuff. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowl. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded every day to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options available. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Just head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. On today's show, I'm speaking to Pastor Mick Fleming from Church on the Street, Burnley. Pastor Mick first shot to fame during the COVID-19 pandemic when a BBC film crew followed his work among some of the most deprived communities in the UK. But it was his own dramatic conversion that really caught the public's attention. Abused as a child, Mick turned to drink and drugs to ease the pain of his childhood experiences. After descending into a life of crime, he had a dramatic encounter when on his way to shoot someone, which changed the course of his life. In this episode of The Profile, he tells me his harrowing yet hopeful story, explains how he found Jesus on the streets and not in the church, and challenges us all to do more to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So Mick, could you perhaps begin by telling us a little bit about your story, how you became a Christian? I know I know it's a very long story, but uh, take us through some of the highlights. So I was a, a drug addict from a very, very young age. So I guess me becoming a Christian stems from the creation of my own downfall, really, through drugs and alcohol and mental illness. And then finally having an experience that began a kind of transformation. I tried to take my own life and thank God it didn't happen. And it was that was kind of the catalyst of faith, really, for me. That's where I sort of got that little seeds that were planted, something that would grow. Didn't feel like it at the time, but it did. You know, it was the beginning. And I ended up in a psychiatric unit with drug-induced psychosis. And uh, again, you know, I met people who uh, were like me. And I'd never met people like that before. They gave me things because they knew how I felt. These weren't the nurses. These were the patients. They told me about their lives and they told me about their own abuse. And I'd never met anybody that had told me about their abuse before. And the stories were like mine. And uh, I felt for the first time in my life that I fit in. And I felt loved. And it had never happened before. It was something really, really special, my days in that psychiatric unit. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your early childhood? What, what led you into drug addiction? I kind of, I got attacked and I got uh, sexually assaulted on my way to school. By a stranger and uh, I went home and I uh, cried that night really to be honest I had to hide my crying from my mum and dad because this man had said he'd kill me mum and dad if I told him so I learned how to not cry really really fast so my head in my tears you know trying to hold him in I uh, I got up in the morning and I decided I'm going to tell my dad and when I went downstairs and my dad was coming in through the front door he said, come in, son, sit down, your sister's dead. And then I heard my, I think the nearest sound I've ever heard is comparable to Jesus dying on the cross. And it's a sound that came out of my mother and it was from the pit of her stomach and it was the sound of love and pain mixed together. And I imagine that's the sound that Jesus makes as he takes his last breath on the cross. And freaked me out a bit, did that sound really. And I looked at my mum and dad crying, holding each other. 
I didn't feel like there was any space for me there. And I just remember sort of walking upstairs and I went into my mum's room and she had some uh, medication that she took for a bad back. And I don't know why I took it because I didn't know anything about drugs, I just, but I did. And I laid on my bed and I floated out my body and there was no more pain and I felt warm. And uh, I sort of got this feeling of peace. Well, then I came straight back down to earth with a bang when the medication started to wear off. And uh, it was even worse when you came back to reality. So I spent the next 30 odd years uh, constantly trying to escape the reality of life, going through all the ranks of different drugs and learning how to, how to be tough, learning how to fight, you know, learning how to rob, steal. And in that all that process, my heart was getting harder and harder and harder. But what I've learned, you know, is that the harder things get, in the end, they become so hard that they get really brittle. And when they get really brittle, they're easy broken. And that's why really hard-hearted people I love, because they're so close to coming to Christ. They just need dropping, bang, and they shatter to pieces. And that's what happened to me. I got that hard. I became brittle. I think I became a drug addict that day, to be honest with you. I just, I used something every day, more or less, from then on. And you had a rather remarkable experience that eventually actually led you to be admitted to psychiatric hospital, didn't you? Can you tell us about that? So I had a gun in a carrier bag and uh, I'd gone to collect a debt and the guy came out of uh, the gym. I was waiting outside. And as I jumped out of the car and he had the gun just, just down by my side, he had two children with him, two little girls, and he was holding the hands. And the light started shining from where he was holding the hands. And he hit me in the face and I couldn't see, but only, honestly, 10, 15 seconds, that's all. And I started to feel sick. I started to shake, I started to sweat. I didn't know what was happening to me. And I was sick and I ripped my stomach inside and it was just blood pouring out of me. I looked like I'd been stabbed. There were blood all over me. I got back in the car, drunk some vodka, and instead of that feeling of, ah, the alcohol didn't work, it was just horrendous. I drove the car into a little industrial park, and uh, I did say a prayer. You know, I said a prayer probably for the, uh, well, probably for the first time since I was a little boy, really, and nothing happened. I got no reply. From, from this God that whoever he was didn't care for me. In a split second, I put the gun under my chin and I pulled the trigger and I thank God it didn't go off. And then I believed, I, I felt that God had answered my prayer and I felt that God had saved me in that moment. And uh, he felt real. And I think part of it was because I knew about the firearm and I knew I didn't think in my head that it, that could jam and could happen. I didn't think that were possible. And uh, when I did put the gun away, I fired it three times before I put it away. And it fired every time. And uh, I don't know if I thought it was Jesus. I don't think I did, but I felt like there was something bigger than me out there at work. And that was the beginning of getting rid of my own selfishness, if you if you understand what I mean, that self-centered belief, it was there was something bigger than me. And and that gave me hope. Got arrested by own police. Then I got sectioned and put into a mental health unit, but I think I was in about four months. So that's kind of what happened. That's how I ended up there. That's the short version, really. And did you have any knowledge of God at all growing up? Was there any sort of faith heritage in your family? Yeah, so my mum and dad were uh, devout Catholics, I'd say. They uh strict, but very loving. So my dad was strict, but uh, very loving. We one of them that would, like, take his belt off, but he'd hit the bed, he wouldn't really eat you, but he'd make you think that. And I, I remember crying, like, thinking he'd hit me. It never hit me. But uh, they were very disciplined. They'd been brought up. They were Irish Catholic, both of them. And uh, they had this ingrained religion in them. You know, if the priest came to the house, it'd be my mum and dad, my mum would be, oh, I can, oh, I am sorry. Well, because 
I haven't dusted the fireplace. I haven't, I haven't put chalk on the step outside for the priest. And oh, it's like, oh, give over, mum. You know, so they had that type of faith. So, you know, we were forced to go to church. But it was like, I was brought up, so the nuns were the, uh, so the headmistresses and the, some of the teachers at the school, and I was a bit of a naughty boy. And so they used to hit me with a stick. So they had a bamboo stick. And the nun used to carry it around. She used to stick it down a belt around the cassock and they'd take it out and hit me with it and tell me Jesus loved me. You know, and I used to think, I don't think Jesus would hit me with a stick if he loved me. Like, you know, so it never really added up to me. It wasn't real. And if that was the kind of Jesus, I didn't really want him, to be honest with you, because it hurt too much. And he told you off a lot and he, Jesus hit you with sticks and then he'd get you out in front of all the school and Jesus would say, you have to tell everybody how bad you've been and everyone would laugh at you. So that wasn't attractive. But somehow in that, that you obviously had somewhere in you this the sense that perhaps God was real because you had this experience, obviously, where you miraculously saw this, this light coming out of these young girls' hands when you actually went to shoot their dad. You experienced God in that moment somehow when you tried to kill yourself and the gun miraculously didn't misfire. And then obviously when you were in the psychiatric unit, you started a sort of a very slow and gentle walk towards God somehow at what point did you think actually do you know what I do believe God's real and I I want to follow him was was there a moment or was it just a, a journey I think so what I used to do there was a nun used to come and see me in the psychiatric unit and she'd fetch me communion and she used to touch my face and she'd say oh God bless you and people were scared of me at this time right so I'm talking about a time when a policeman couldn't be on his own with me. So a policeman came to the house for one of my children and every 30 seconds he has to radio through to make sure he's safe. So you can see the kind of person that I was. But this nun sat in a room with me on her own, elderly lady, gave me communion and she touched me first, saying, hey, God bless you, Jesus does love you. And she didn't hit me with a stick. So she had an impact on me. And then there was a guy that came to see me who uh, was a pastor. It was his first outreach. He worked for drug and alcohol services at the time. And uh, he said he went home and he cried. He said, I was the most poorliest person he'd ever met. And I didn't think I was that bad, you know. So the picture that we're formulating was that I was really, really ill and really dangerous. I just didn't have that perception for myself. And that's what illness is, isn't it, I guess. I didn't perceive myself as being like that. But I think it was leaving the psychiatric unit where the walk with Jesus began. A faith in something bigger than me had been planted. But when I had to leave the psychiatric unit, which I didn't want to leave, I was afraid to go back out into this world, you know, because I was comfortable where I was. And it was only a few months, but almost become like institutionalized, you know. So I'd only go outside for a cigarette. And I didn't want to wander off. I didn't want to go too far away from the door, you know. And I was a big, strong lad. I was, you know, it was like I had this fear about it. So when I had to leave, I think that's when I began to feel the presence of God and and I started to pray. And I sort of used to pray in Jesus' name. I just threw that on at the end just in case, you know, just in case there was a Jesus like and it was him. So I used to just say it and then, I, what I used to do is I, I didn't want to pray with my eyes shut. I wanted to pray with my eyes open because I thought if Jesus is going to do something, I want to see what he's going to do. And he always watched people on telling and, and, and even in churches as a kid and they'd all bow their heads and shut their eyes. Well, I never did. I always opened my eyes to see what they couldn't see. I was trying to watch where's Jesus, what's he doing, what's going on here. And that's what I did. You know, I kept my eyes open. I was looking for Jesus or looking for what he was doing deliberately. So it was leaving the psychiatric unit that I started to have experiences of God that were something that have changed me. You write in your book about one particular experience where you saw an angel at the end of your bed. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like I've asked myself about this over the years uh, to try to work it out myself, thinking, remembering, I've just come out of a psychiatric unit, but I've never seen any vision things, the things that weren't really there. It, 
and then you know the truth of it being what actually happened after so i've had to kind of come to terms with it and i guess whoever's listening can make their own mind up what they think i've worked it out for me but I guess they'll work out for themselves. So, so I'm sat in a homeless hostel on my own. No drugs, no alcohol, but emotionally ripped apart. I can only describe it as if you can imagine having a meat-up rammed into the inside of your stomach and someone's trying to rip the insides out. That's exactly what it feels like. Don't know how to manage emotionally. I've got these feelings that I've never had since I was a child. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know who I am. I've got nothing. I can't rely on them on money. I can't rely on, there's nothing. All of me is gone. And I'm in this homeless hostel and I'm praying. I don't know what to do. I pray with my uh, eyes wide open. And as I'm praying, so I see a light at the bottom of the bed. And then full blown, there's an angel. Huge being, all white. And the first thing I want to do is I want to like just touch it, prod it to see if it's like a ghost or something or if it's like solid, but it looks solid, but it's white. And I'm thinking, oh dear, Mick, you are really poorly. My first thought is I'm going back, to, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow, I'm going to make an appointment and I'm, I'm going to have to get the medication up to something. And then the angel talked, he spoke and he just said, you're all right, pal. And I went, yeah, I'm all right. How are you? How's it going? I guess that's what, how you talk to angels, isn't it? How you doing, pal? You know, it's sound. And, uh, the conversation began and said, uh, so I said, what do you want? He said, well, God sent me, hasn't he? I went, right, nice one. He said, so what? He, went, he wants you to do something, will you do it? I went, well, it depends what it is. So he just said he wants you to go and stand against this wall. He told me exactly where the wall were, but it had to be exactly seven o'clock. It couldn't be five past, it has to be exactly seven o'clock. Five past is too late, will you go and do it? He said, why? He said, just go. Will you do it? Yes or no? God wants you to do it. I went, yeah. And the angel went, right, see you later. I'll be back to off an hour. Bang, gone. And I'm sat there thinking, oh, you are nuts, mate. This is like in the afternoon-ish. And it's, I'm waiting till seven o'clock and I'm thinking, oh, should I ring somebody up now? Should I go to doctors? And time starts going on and on and on. It's getting towards seven o'clock. It's like quarter to seven. And I thought, I'm not going. That's just ridiculous. You're absolutely crazy. And then I thought, well, I've got to go. So I did. And I went against the wall. And I'm looking at the town hall clock because it's literally, you could see the face of the clock from where I'm stood, leant against this brick wall. Exactly seven o'clock, I hear the chimes of the clock. And there's nothing there. And I'm smoking a cigarette. I used to smoke then. I just drops it on the floor, rubs it under my foot. And I'm just about to walk away thinking, book a doctor's appointment. And a guy walked around the corner and just went, all right, Mick, I bet you didn't expect to see me here. Exactly seven o'clock, I was like, oh my goodness, what on earth? I couldn't speak. I just didn't even know what to think. He said, come on in. He's anonymous. I'll make you a brew. And I'm like, and the guy worked in the homeless hostel, but I never spoke to him before, but I'd seen him in the office. He turned out he was a recovering drug addict. He was 20 odd years in recovery. And he was an NA meeting. And he took me into the meeting, made me a brew and... He talked about gods and higher powers and stuff. And I'm thinking, blimey, I can't say all because, like, an angel sent me here. So that's how I got into recovery. And that was the beginning of my faith. Good evening, sir. Hi. Is your brain hungry for knowledge? Um, well, for starters, we have a thought-provoking mix of theological articles, debates and trends. For the main, interviews with politicians, activists and Christian experts. And for pudding, the creme de la creme of interactive content and videos. Subscribe now for home delivery of the monthly magazine and online access and get 50% off annual subscription. Let's go halves at premierchristianity.com slash subscribe. Offer valid until the end of December. It was like I saw people in that meeting that, that were clean and sober for a long time because of our God. And I thought, I've had this angel. He sent me there. So, so God must have sent me there. So that when I'd gone back, I felt I got some new friends because they all give me telephone numbers and stuff. I felt people liked me. And I'd always been a little bit dangerous at times. And people used to stay away from me. They used to keep me away. These people were wanting to hug me. And it was like, that was the beginning of it. And then the day after, the angel came again. 
and said uh, God had a job for me to do and he wanted to forgive the man that had hurt me. And then he wanted me to go out and tell everybody about Jesus and he'd send it around the world. And I told the angel to do one and I didn't believe in that God. I didn't want to forgive the man that hurt me and I would never would. It had never happened. I think you sent the wrong Jesus. I'm looking for a different one. Because I didn't know there was only one. I thought I could have whichever Jesus I wanted at that time. And I followed a different Jesus for a while. I just met him up in my head and, and said a few prayers. Yeah, so that was that experience. Uh, yeah, and that, that is a really big issue, isn't it, for a lot of people with, to be quite frank, much smaller things to forgive than, than being abused as a child. How do we forgive people that have that have really wronged us, where we feel that that quite rightly that that sense of anger is justified in some way, and it's not an easy thing ever to to forgive someone who's abused you as a child. So, how did you eventually move towards the point where you were able to let go of that? When when and obviously in the beginning, like you said, you were absolutely adamant that you would never ever ever do that. I think for me, it was understanding what forgiveness was. My perception of forgiveness changed. So I used to think that forgiveness was putting my arms around somebody or they're putting their arms around me and saying, oh, it's all right, don't worry about it, it's fine. That's not my understanding of forgiveness now. My experience changed. So this period of time I'm talking about, probably six months down the line from that angelic experience, I was sat in a McDonald's. There was a guy across from me who was an alcoholic. He's, he's all over the place, he's a bit leery. And I got him a drink, I got him a, a burger, and I started talking to him. I ended up helping him and he got sober. I got him into those meetings that I'd found. Other people supported him and he, he stayed clean. He died two years later because he damaged himself with the alcohol and, the, and drugs and things. And I never told him, but he was the man that raped me. And the thing was that I knew it right from when I saw him. So I thought, I've lived in his sin, in what he did to me, for 30-odd years. I've destroyed myself and everybody around me. What have I been doing? So forgiveness became, my sin's been bad enough. Why would I live in somebody else's? And it was that simple. And I got so much peace, it flooded in. It transformed me. I was no longer carrying this heavy weight and it was like it was none of my business anymore. Between him and God, it's none of my business. But I got it, it was like a revelation. Why? And it's just so simple. Why, why would I live in somebody else's sin? And that's what I do now. That's how I'm able to let go of bitterness and resentment when people attack me or say things about me or whatever, you know, just life's life, isn't it? I don't need to live in their sin. I have to hate them or even love them. It just means I don't have to live in their sin and God does the rest. And did that revelation come to you in that minute as you saw him or was it something that had sort of been happening in your heart prior well, to that moment? The truth is, I think a little bit of both, but the truth is I'd teed him up to kill him. So I'm going to come back or meet him again. And I had a knife with me and I was going to do him in. I had a realisation in the moment when I was meeting him the second time, he didn't know what was going to happen. But I never knew, even though I was about 42 or something, 43 at the time, there was times in life where you could do nothing. And I didn't know this. I always thought everything had to have a response. If someone hits you, you hit them back. If someone says something to you, you say something back. You someone... There's never an instance ever in my life where I did nothing. It was That was a revelation, but that was the beginning of... I don't actually have to do that. There's a choice to do nothing. So I don't need to ring the police. I don't need to do him in. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I can actually do nothing here. And I had to fight with my inner self to do nothing. But that was the beginning of understanding of forgiveness, the beginning of saying, well, that's his sin, not mine. Be still and know I'm God. Do nothing. I don't think it just means lie down and meditate or sit down and take deep breaths and make sure you feel very lovely. I think it means don't do anything. And we see that across a lot of society, don't we, where, where we live in a world today where 
it is okay it's actively promoted that that to be happy you have to act on every desire and impulse that seems to cross your mind when actually the christian faith is it's quite different to that isn't it it's about actually putting your desires your wants your maybe natural responses below the authority of christ and accepting that in some situations it is better as you say to do nothing or to to actively you know fight against those natural desires that might just spring up from all sorts of different places that may or may not be healthy well they were revelations for me even at like 40 odd years of age these were like probably for some people they were just simple truths that most people would know but I didn't have that emotionally. I had to attack or I had to defend or I had to do something. So they were real revelations for me. And then I think the fruit that started to come out of the things that were happening, which led me closer and closer to God. It was that understanding of forgiveness that put me on a, a different trajectory, really. People kept saying, Jesus died for your sin, and I didn't know what they meant. And it's, you know what I mean? I had no idea what they were talking about. and I had to kind of come to find out what that sort of meant, really. But that was the next kind of step, really, in my life, to to work out what that meant. Jesus died for your sins, and I couldn't kind of get my head around it, really. Nobody could explain it to me. They just all said, no, he died because he loves you. Well, so what? So what? What what does that mean, then? He loves me. I've never seen him, never met him, don't know, do I? You know, so why does that going to change anything in me? So that was, I think I was on a, on a journey to find out what Jesus died for my sins meant. And I found that out, you know, I found out what it meant for me anyway. And, and how did you come to that understanding? What was it that finally sort of clicked that into place for you? There were lots of different things. So I saw, first of all, I saw people that had a peace in them that I didn't have. People who were helping me. So Christians, largely older women. So like... Uh, you know, maybe like mother figures. I never had a friend that was a girl because it, it had always been sexual. So I didn't know that was all right. And I didn't. And it sounds insane, but I didn't. So I'd see like these women that were just helping me and they were special women and they were chosen by God. And I could tell. And I knew that I didn't have that. I knew I didn't have it, you know. So I knew I needed something else. And then there was a, I met a guy who had just come out of prison and he was in this church and he went, do you know what, Mick? He said, because I've known him from my past, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm, yeah, it's the Jesus thing. I'm trying to find out. He went, yeah, so am I. He said, oh, you know, he said, I'm in prison. He said, and uh, he said, I've asked the chaplain in there, Jesus died for my sins. He said, don't know what he's on about. I said, do you know what? It's well odd, isn't it? I said, it's mad, isn't it? He said, he couldn't explain it to me. He said, he, he gave me a load of crap. He said, he told me all this stuff. He said, and he's just rubbish. Don't know what he's on about. He said, I've been to loads of churches and I've asked them the same thing and not one of them can tell me properly. I went, right. So I said, well, what do you think it means? He went, I've no idea. He said, what do you think it means? I said, well, I think this. So I said, what did you go to jail for? And he said, burglary. I went, right, okay. I said, I think this is what it is. Imagine this is a fellow led on the floor. And everybody's coming and they're stamping on his head, they're kicking him, they're giving him, they're stabbing him, spitting at him, because they think he's the one that's done the burglaries. He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, your burglaries. He went, what, my burglaries? I went, yeah, every one of them. So they're all kicking. I said, and all he's got to do is just say, it were him. I said, but he don't grass. Jesus, he's not a grass. I said, and that's Jesus on the floor. He went, what, all my burglaries? Why didn't he just grass me up? And I said, because he loves you we both broke down together and we got Jesus for the first time in our lives, both of us together. We got thrown out of the church because I'd, we both used a bit of strong language because I had said, Jesus effing loves you. And he said, mate, he effing loves you as well, brother. And we got thrown out of the church, but we found Jesus and then we got thrown out of the church for swearing. Classic. <laughs> on our lives, we're never the same again. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. 
So we got that understanding of it was about us and our relationship, and he took it, and we believe that, and we still do, you know, I still do, and he he does as well, you know, and uh, it changed us. And it was the thing of, like, Jesus didn't grass us up. He didn't. He took it. And it, and it, understanding it in an urban context, like I'm saying it, is something that really, really spoke really loudly to me. And uh, then I, I was at university and uh, I sort of found out from that point what it meant to be saved because I didn't know what they were talking about. I ended up in a university and they were talking about salvation and all this sort of stuff. And I had, so somebody said, when were you saved? And I thought, I don't even know what you're talking about, mate. It's no idea. I thought saved were like what a goalkeeper did. You know, it was like, they had a different language to me. They talked Christian language and I didn't understand it. Failed me for sheer because I couldn't read. So I had to learn how to read properly. And uh, I got these, some glasses and things to help me to read with the light and everything else. And I read about this bloke called John Wesley and it was the first thing I'd ever read. And that's the truth, because I'd really struggled to read. And he said he got his heart strangely warmed. And he believed in God in his head, but he didn't have it in his heart. And he was looking at these people, and he knew he didn't have it. And I said, I am John Wesley. I am him. I believe in my head. My heart isn't strangely warmed. Definitely not. And I need to find out how to get my heart strangely warmed. So I went and asked the chaplain, Went in, sat down with the chaplain at a theological college and said, I'm like John Wesley. So you can imagine the look of horror on her face. And I asked her how to get your heart strangely warmed because I don't have that. Because I thought that was something that all Christians talked about. You know, like, are you safe? Have you had a heart strangely warmed moment? And so I would ask him because I thought that's what you did. She just told me about Jesus. But she said, especially you, especially me. And that brought me, and in her office, in floods of tears, I got my heart strangely warmed. And uh, my studies got better and better. Got a really good degree. They got it wrong. I wasn't stupid when I was a kid. They used to stand me on a chair and get me to make donkey noises. And that took me on to ordination from there. And now I do what I do. So you first kind of hit the public awareness, I guess, during lockdown when the BBC ran a feature on what you were doing up in Burnley and and talked about the work that you were doing with Church on the Street there. So tell us a little bit about that. I'm really interested in what your church looks like, what you were doing during lockdown, but also how did it feel to suddenly have quite a lot of media attention? It's been strange and it still is. So what happened was, yeah, the BBC followed us doing what, who were doing, but it, I was doing it anyway. It wasn't because of lockdown. I've always done it. I've done it for 10 years. The perception uh, the country got from it was that it was especially for these times, I guess. But it, 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 there was just a greater need. But it, it was just the stuff I'd, I'd done every day. It wasn't any different to me, really. So we're crying with people and uh, praying with people and people with mental illnesses trying to talk them out of killing themselves and trying to give them the help and the support and things. It just happened that they captured it in a moment. And I think what they got really was a moment of history, really. I think it, it's, it's something that I know some universities, they stood that video and the piece because it's like it was COVID. Everything was shut. So even the churches were getting paid to keep the doors shut. We're furloughing people because they wanted to survive the pandemic. I didn't care less about the money, you know, and I didn't care less whether we should, because we were church on the street, so that's where our church were and is. So we didn't show. We found ways to stay up. So the food banks are set up just exactly the same as drug deals. You get the merchandise, you drop it off in a place, you get people to put it in bags, pick the bags up, you take it out and you drop it off. Drug deal. So I just find ways that I used as a criminal to be smarter and to do what, I guess the other churches didn't know how to do it because they weren't crooks. I'd been a crook, Anna, so I knew how to find ways around the rules and the regulations without getting caught. And that's what I did. I didn't break any laws. I did my best anyway. Police tried to arrest me once on a car park, but 
I wasn't brilliant at not hugging people because the guys I were hugging were dying and uh, delivering food parcels on one street. Three men under 40 killed themselves in three weeks. You know, they took their own lives because they got down the the drug route and, and also the uh, conspiracy theory route and they couldn't hold it together. I was holding them in my arm, in, in the, you know, in my arms. Whilst they were crying, one in life, praying for them, whilst the churches were shut. I think the BBC piece, the first one anyway, because I did three with them, spoke to that. You know, we've lost the touch. You're not allowed to touch each other. You're not allowed to do that. And it's like, I might have been wrong in what I did, but I was trying to keep people alive long enough to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because I knew what it had done for me. And I know what it's done for many other people as well. So I think from that, what happened was a guy called Ed Thomas, who's become a personal friend of mine, him and the cameraman, close friends he said how do you end up being like a vicar thing and I went I don't know Ed he went well tell me about your life so I told him some of the little bit like little bit like what I've told you and he went yeah f word joking and I went no no that's what's happening he said can I write about it so I said yeah so he wrote a like a 2000 long read for the BBC website and that's when everything really took off and changed because it had millions of people read it. So then I started to get lots of media interest. At the beginning, it was very difficult, but now it's, it's quite easy because I know what God's called me to do. Open my mouth around social justice issues and give the gospel. So it's not hard. You know, they kind of, somebody rung me up and they wanted to me to be on a programme for a, a vicar, one's an ex-pole dancer, one's an ex-boxer, and me and that. There's no gospel in that for me. I'm not going to do the stuff that's not going to give me a voice to speak truth in, into into situations. So I know what to do now and, and sort of how to do it. It has changed my life, but it's just been the next step and the next step and the next step. And I just want people to find Jesus. I don't care really whether people like me or dislike me or the way I do it or the style I have or whatever, I don't really care, you know, because that's who I am and that's all I've got. I've only got what God's given me to to use. So that's kind of what what I'm gonna do, you know, and, and I don't make any excuses about that. I don't I don't apologize for it really. The shocking thing for me, it's not so bad now, but the thing that took me back was I get death threats, I get lots of things from other Christians that don't particularly like me and things like that. That was a bit of a shock at the beginning because I thought, blimey, I'm only trying to do good stuff. I've had more death threats as a Christian than I did when I was doing the other sort of stuff. Mind you, when I was doing the other sort of stuff, people did try to kill me. I haven't had any Christians try to kill me yet, but uh, there's time, I guess. But that was a bit of a shock at first. And, and the things that were levelled at me was like, I'm just a social worker and I'm not giving the gospel. And I just thought, well, they misunderstand the gospel, be a doer of the word and and things like that. But it, it's, so that upset me because I don't think two or three years ago I was mature enough, maybe even in my faith, to handle the criticism that was coming. But I've matured just by doing it and by facing the things that come against me and, and, and I've grown up a little bit as a Christian, you know, and I can see other people's pain in the criticism and I've grown. So it's good, but I have a lot of peace and all around that. And I think that's just because of the journey. I think love's in the pain. And when you share your pain together with somebody else, that's where you find Jesus. So being authentic and not being the pastor of the church that, pretends that he don't have a problem. If I'm walking around Tesco, some days I with two blows walking towards me and I think of me, I'm just gonna punch them both in the face. You know, it's just a random thought. It's like, you know, that's who and what I am. I would never punch anybody in the face. I don't need to, but the thoughts are there. But I'm all right to stand up at the front of the church and say, this is what happens. I don't have to be a holy pastor. I have to be an authentic one, an honest one, truthful one. And and it's sharing that stuff together. That's where healing comes. It's when you don't share it. 
that's when you, as a Christian, that's when you're in trouble. And now it likes to confess and to share your feelings, your emotions and your your rights and your wrongs. And that's where we heal. Absolutely. Where did the idea for Church on the Street come from? Did you always know that you were going to lead your own church or was it because you saw something missing in the churches that you were involved in? For me, it was I was, when I was homeless, it was my first night ever sleeping on the street. And uh, I went into a church and they had like you know, brews and biscuits and stuff. And I was erratic and I was rattling for a drink, so shaking and, and all that. Because if I didn't get a drink, I could have a fit through not being able to get out of alcohol. And I was in the church having a brew and they wanted to shut. Now, these were nice people. And it's not their fault. You know, I'd put myself in that situation. I'd put myself there. It wasn't their fault, but they couldn't wait to get rid of me. And when they got me out of the door, I heard it bolt behind me. And I would cross over the road and I walked down the street. And there was a guy in a shop doorway. And he said to me, where are you going? I said, I don't know. He said, where are you sleeping? I said, I don't know. He said, come and sit here. So I sat down and he wrapped the quilt around me. And he took his hat off his head and he put it on my head. And he could see her rattling for a drink. And he poured his cider into my mouth for half an hour until the shakes went. He didn't even speak to me until all the shakes went. Then he rolled me a cigarette, put it in my mouth, and he lit it for me. And I met Jesus in the shop doorway, not in the church. Where else would he be? And I wanted to be part of a church where Jesus was in the shop doorway. And it didn't exist, not as I had seen it. The, the doctrine were dragging people down and stopping people moving and expressing themselves. We don't do that. We can't do it like that. We can't do it like this. I thought you can. So the teachings of Jesus are not religion. It can be part of religion, but the teachings of Jesus separate and break the barriers that are there with religion. It's, it's, Church and, and religion is just a structure that Jesus grows through. And also, you just you need that to hold things in place. But that's not what Jesus is. And his teachings are not that. I just want to follow the teachings of Jesus, and I don't want to be held down. So church on the street is like Jesus in a shop doorway, really. That's kind of how we would describe it, really. What does an average week look like for you guys? What what are you up to? What does your church look like? Blimey. So in our church, we'll do outreach. So we feed people outside. But inside, well over a thousand, maybe as many as 2,000 coming through the doors. So we're on every day except for Saturday. People come in. We've done deals with the NHS. So we have nurses and doctors and we have a mental health team in here that work out of, out of here. We have our own counsellors that work out, out of this building. We have hot food every single day, food on all day. So we have a kitchen, we staff on working, just bring food out. We have a food bank. We have homeless navigators picking up the homeless guys in here. Uh, we have showers. We have a needle exchange. We have the doctors and nurses doing bandages for people who've got bad legs, bad arms. I can go on and on and on and on. We have opticians that come in and do eye tests for people and give them free glasses. We have prayer. We have Bible study. Right in the middle of all that going on, it's very, very, very busy place every day. And then on a Sunday, right down the centre of it, we have our Sunday services where we just all messy together. It's hard work. Sometimes it's more like running in a hospital in respect of the capacity and the state of people uh, and I think that's what the church should be. So I've set it up so that if you can imagine, so I have this dream type of thing in my head that's like, what would happen if a monastery was invented today? What would it look like? Well, it looks like this. It's a 21st century monastery. That's kind of how I see it. So you've got Christ down the centre of it, but you've been a doer of the word. You, you sort of supporting the homeless, supporting the people who are hungry, the pensioners, the children, the widows, feeding them, clothing them, doing the washing for them. We have washers and dryers, you know, let them have a shower if they need to get help with the mental health, the doctor in and, and all the other stuff. Citizens advice that come work out of here. The secular come in and they end up being Christianized just not by 
us preaching at them, but by the work we do, because they come in as professionals and we wrap our faith around it so the outcomes are better and they can see that. So they start to ask questions and somebody who's doing the tea and coffee will pray for the nurse and and things start to change and happen. And that's that's what should happen and that's what church should be. But is it hard work? Yes. Is it messy? Very. Is it fruitful? Galore. It's like an orchard full of fruit and growing. Growing because the seeds are falling from the trees and more trees are growing. And, and that's why it's growing and that's why it's working. Do you have a very big staff team? How many? You can't manage all this by yourself, surely? Oh, no. This is, a, I think we've got 13 paid staff and then there's about 50 volunteers or something because we, we don't just work in Burnley, we do things elsewhere. And we're pushing out, you know, we, we're going to push out as well. So. And what's been the biggest challenge over the last couple of years? Obviously, you know, we've spoken a little bit about lockdown and, and how that sort of thrust the work that you do into the limelight. But obviously you mentioned that it was stuff that you've been doing for a very long time and a need that had always been there. Obviously, since lockdown, we've had a world of other problems come along, the political turmoil, the energy crisis, Ukraine, goodness knows what else. How is that affecting the work that you do on the streets? How is it affecting the people that you see? You know, what is it that, that you, you've really got on your heart at the moment that, that you want to see change to really impact the people that you work with? So we, it's worse now than in the pandemic. The need is rising, but the resource is getting less and less because people don't have the money, you see. I think I want to see the the political principles change. So what happens is with a trickle-down economy, we have been too political, but with a trickle-down economy, it depends that you have to have four. You have to have them. Otherwise, it doesn't work, does it? Because it's trickling down to what? To the poor people. So you've got to keep the poor. Or that's the whole point, you know. So the rich get richer, and that trickles down. And I, I don't ever seen anything in nature or even in the bible or anywhere that says well we're just going to get a flower and it's going to grow from the sky downwards i think it's a pipe dream you know it's rubbish it, it doesn't work it grows from the bottom up so it's bottom up innovation that's required and that means investment at the lowest level into small community groups like churches that are doing this type of work. And if they did that, the churches have the buildings, they have the uh, the volunteers, they have a structure that can be used so wonderfully that change can come for people. And I never, I never read in my Bible Jesus saying anywhere, go to Caesar for your food and your sandwiches and your clothing and your thing. He never said that. He never said go to the government. He never said, he said, let's bring about change through what we're doing in Christ, in love and in truth. And them organisations then will change. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to facilitate change around us in the community. So I, I'd want to see more investment at a grassroots level. I'd want to see churches pushing out I'd want to see some churches closing the doors and opening and rubbing themselves out and starting again. So shut your doors, just, just open on a Sunday, shut your doors, have a rethink about what you're going to do, restructure inside your church, and let's go out and meet the need. And let's not worry about Caesar giving us money. Let's worry about God providing the provision for the work that we're doing. And I think that's a profound difference. So that's what I'd want to see. On my heart at the moment is we've got more working poor. So this is a new thing I've not seen to this degree. So people who are working still needing food parcels, but they can't get to work last week of the month. So they need uh, bus passes and money to buy bus passes and things like that. Pension of poverty growing quicker. So they could always manage you know, they get the pension and, and, and whatever they've got. And they could always manage. Now they can't manage, but they don't have the ability to get extra income ever, anywhere, no how. So they're coming to us for the support to try to help them sometimes with the bills, but also so they can save money just by being here, really. 
children undernourished and uh, not being fed properly. So it's sometimes it's not just the food, not just the lack of food, it's the type of food. So we're seeing children uh, not developing, you know, the brain's not developing and they're not grasping education properly because they're not getting the right types of food and not drinking water and, and lots of different things. Also, we see and have seen, not as one-offs, people sleeping rough on the street with uh, in wheelchairs, electric wheelchairs, disabled people. Now, this country used to look after its pensioners, mentally ill and disabled people really, really well. Now we see more of, more of them on the street. So an, uh, I think it was an 84-year-old man sleeping under a tree. And I can go on and on and on and on and on. So we don't look after these people as a society anymore. And this is where the church has to step up and not just say, oh, it's all about money. Well, if it was just about money, we wouldn't be here because we set this up with 10 quid. I only had a tenner. That's all I had. So God will provide if you're doing the work he wants you to do. Trust him and just go out and do it, really. It's, it would be my... my this is a, a cry out not to governments, really. It's a cry out to church to let go of their own arrogance and repent. We need to repent as church so that God can move. I think church per se, this church included all of us, we need to repent. We haven't seen the truth of the gospel and we've blocked God and we haven't provided for the poor how we should have done. It's been on our basis, not on God's basis. And in all of our communities, wherever we are, there's people lonely, lost, upset, hungry, doesn't matter whether you've got loads of money, doesn't matter if you live in an affluent place, but there's still old people there. There'll still be middle-class women drinking themselves to death in their own, pretending they're not. And I can go on and on and on and on. And it's the church needs to step up and serve these people. So I'm just kind of calling, you know, just churches, really. Let's look at ourselves and restructure ourselves for, for the times that we're in now. And, and let, let's not do what we've always done. Let's look at what's happening now and through love and compassion of Christ, let's step out. You know, stained glass windows won't feed children. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to happen. There's a place for that. Of course, we've got to pull people in. We've got to pull people in and love them and care for them and meet the need, you know. And, and I think that's, now's the time for that. been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.